Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 31st, we're studying Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 18. Jesus continues to teach during Holy Week, telling a parable about a vineyard owner and his tenants. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Always good to be here. As we get started this morning, let's talk context. We're in the middle of Luke 20. What do we need to know about the situation of this text as we jump in this morning? Right. You already mentioned the big thing, that we are right in the middle of, uh, of Holy Week, and this is like the one big day Jesus spends at the temple uh, teaching. And of course, when, when we say the temple, we have to remember that it probably means temple more broadly, like not by the altar, but in the, the larger temple precincts where a lot of, you know, actual public teaching went on. This wasn't that unusual. But of course, what, what's unusual is that you don't get the Son of God every, there every day. And so uh, so anyway, he's, uh, he's kind of having a showdown. As we've watched the gospel unfold, the, uh, the tension with the religious leadership has been rising increasingly. Um, you know, and they have uh, they've solidified their rejection of Jesus, and Jesus is basically calling them out on this. Um, probably really of particular note is this theme of authority, um, because he has just, uh, the religious leaders have just asked Jesus, hey, you know, basically, where, where do you get off? Uh, who gives you the authority to do all these things? And um, it's interesting because I think it, it echoes um, or, or I should say it corresponds nicely to John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus, will, he, he brings up the whole subject of John the Baptist. And, um, and he points out, I think, something that, that he's going to use in this parable, that their rejection of John the Baptist as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets um, is really indicative of their rejection, um, not only of you know, the work that God has given them to do as the shepherds of Israel, but ultimately, um, when the Son of God comes along right in front of them, they're going to reject his authority as well. You know, in other words, as it went with John the Baptist, so it is. So it will be with Jesus as well. With the parable that we've got today, the ESV calls it the parable of the wicked tenants. And you've said that the context of authority is important. What do you think of the the title for this parable? What what might I I like to think about this because sometimes our our titles help us to get a feel for what the parable is going to be about ahead of time. Right. So what what do you think of the a title yeah. for this parable? Yeah, and sometimes the the editors don't always pick the best titles either. So, um, you know, I mean, we could uh, we could call it also the uh, you know the parable of the spurned master. Uh, I think that would be an appropriate title for it too, or uh, perhaps even more dark, uh, you know, the uh, the parable of the doomed son, you might say. But of course, that's that's probably a little overplaying the hand because he's not really doomed in the end, at least not theologically. But uh, but yeah, I mean, or if you want to play off the authority issue, you know, as you uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, 
you know, <laughs> you want to have a really awkward sounding long title. Uh, you know, the, the parable of the guys who didn't understand who, you know, what belonged to whom, right? That, that could be a very descriptive, but really awkward title right. for them. That's right. If, if it was in German, you'd put it all in one word. Even. <laughs> that, that's right. It'd be like 78 uh, letters long and it would be one word. <laughs> all right. Well, let's go ahead and read this text then. Again, this is Jesus teaching in the temple and he's, he's talking to the people here. The religious right. leaders are overhearing it. We want to make note of that because it does become important, not only in today's text, but in tomorrow's as well. So again, we're in Luke 20, beginning at verse 9 this morning. And he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's our text for today. That's Luke 20, verses 9 to 18. I mentioned it briefly, and, and we don't have to talk about it too much at, right now, but it will become important later. The audience of this parable being the people, just give us a, a brief taste. Why is that important? Right. It, it's important because, uh, first of all, um, Jesus is, in, he is rebuking the religious leaders. I mean, l let's be real transparent, by the way, about this. This is not a complicated parable. I mean, it's, everybody seems to get it, which often is not the case. I mean, you remember, um, uh, for instance, the parable of the soils, the disciples have to come back and ask Jesus, hey, what is this thing really about? This is not a mysterious parable at all. It becomes obviously clear based on the response, both of the crowd, but also based upon the response, which we which we didn't read today, but you'll you'll read tomorrow, um, uh, the response of the scribes and the chief priests. They understand that this is about them, and uh, and so that's that's important to note, just in terms of interpreting it. But but perhaps more importantly, I think it indicates that uh, that this is not just a personal indictment. It's not like Jesus isn't taking the religious leaders aside and having you know giving them a little stern talking to. You know, this is actually a proclamation of judgment, really, to all the people of Israel, but not necessarily about all the people of Israel. Hmm. So, in other words, I guess what I mean by that is that um, the the people of God need to understand that the people who are entrusted with their care, their stewardship, it's you know, that is the religious leadership, you know. These, the stewardship is being taken away from them. And this is actually going to become part of the gospel message. Um, 
And so that's why it's really important that this is not just kind of a, a side theological debate with a bunch of with the religious leaders. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to to watch Jesus during Holy Week and the back and forth that occurs here. I mean, in yesterday's text, you had the question come from the religious leaders. Now Jesus turns to the people. The religious leaders are overhearing it, but you you just kind of see this back and forth between Jesus and his opponents. And it, it's striking to watch Jesus because he wins every time. You know, and if, if you're looking at this from a human perspective, it, it would seem like Jesus is, I'm putting this in quotes, he's winning. And yet where all this leads, he's he's orchestrating events, he's moving events so that it does lead to his own death and resurrection, which this parable even talks about. It's just, it's striking to right. watch how Jesus remains in control of, of these events during Holy Week. Yeah, because it seems, I mean, one one way of reading the gospel, which is which is wrong, but it is one way of reading them, is, you know, Jesus as supreme victim, right? I mean, this, is, this has been uh, probably in more scholarly circles, but this is one of the ways that it's been looked at. You know, Jesus is a victim of circumstances, so on and so forth, and that, uh, you know, in, he ends up, you know, kind of getting a raw deal to machinations of those who are in charge in the day. Like, but when, if you really read the text well, like you're pointing out, that you, you just can't come to that conclusion. You've gotta, you have to ignore large swaths of this, that not only does Jesus know that this is coming, but he actually willingly kind of walks this road. I mean, it reminds me very much of, well, another text that's going to become pertinent in a little bit, so I'll, I'll bring us there now, is Luke chapter 13, um, uh, which we uh, had a, a number of weeks ago in church, where the other uh, uh, some people come to Jesus and say, "Hey, hey, Herod's trying to kill you. Why don't you get out of here?" And Jesus says, "No, you to go. You to go tell that fox, which, by the way, is not a compliment. Um, you know, I'm going to just keep on doing all my work, right? And on the third day, I'm going to come to Jerusalem. And right after that, or in fact, it's in the context of that little dialogue, he says, you know, he says, nevertheless, I must go on my way." Uh, today and tomorrow and on the day following, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So, I mean, this is long before he's even stepped inside of Jerusalem. This is long before Passion Week. But he says, it cannot be that a prophet should uh, perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which ironically is exactly how they hail him as he comes into, into the city. But one of the things I want to point out about that text, though, is that Jesus, you know, this demonstrates Jesus' awareness much earlier that, um, that Jerusalem and, of course, the leadership of Jerusalem, which is the religious leaders, uh, they are characterized as being prophet killers, right? And that's exactly how they get described in this parable. So this is not like Jesus is saying something, you know, that's going to, you know, that's going to be shocking at least. It, it, clearly Jesus already understands this. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier that this parable is pretty straightforward. So take us to the elements of this parable. We've got a master, got some tenants, we've got a vineyard. All of these details are important to pick up. Right. And, and these are, once again, and none of them are really original either. I mean, Jesus has, has used almost all of these in other contexts. And so, uh, so man planted a vineyard. First of all, you've got a, um, let's actually start with the vineyard. The vineyard 
uh, is in the Old Testament oftentimes a metaphor for the people of Israel. You know, a couple of good examples come to mind. Probably the most famous one is in Isaiah chapter 5, where, um, where you know, Isaiah has this, this really, it's a, really a song, but it's a parable as well. You know, uh, I'm going to sing this song about my vineyard, and it tells a story about a man who planted a vineyard, and he did everything for it, you know, fertilized it, and built a watchtower, and, and the... Uh, you know, and the uh, the grape vats and the whole nine yards. And what did it do? It produced bad grapes. It didn't do exactly what it was meant to do. And so what does he do? He tears down the hedge and he basically lets his enemies run roughshod over it. He lets it be destroyed. And then, then he actually reveals, this isn't like, <laughs> we're not left to fill in the blanks. He says, you know, the vineyard is Israel, <laughs> right? So, so um, you know, the same we have the same metaphor being used in Jeremiah 2, and there's kind of a, a similar one being used in, in Psalm 80. And so when, when the people, as you can imagine, as the people are hearing, especially the religious leaders, are hearing a man planted a vineyard, right? They've got to be thinking about these texts. They have to be. And, um, and so the vineyard stands for, you know, uh, the people of God. But now, of course, so the master then, um, is especially in this context here with you know since he's got a son you could say is you could say he's generally God or per perhaps more specifically the father so and then he has this other feature where he he goes off to another place in this case it's another country for a while which implies he's going to return and Jesus mentions that at the end and that's another common feature of some of the kingdom of God parables that we've had like um in fact, just earlier in Luke, the uh, parable of Minas, and then also the, uh, the parable of the talents in, in Matthew as well. And so these, my point is, is that these are all well-known features that Jesus is, is using. So even if to us, perhaps as 20th century you know, um, people, especially if we don't know our Bibles real well, some of this stuff may sound really original. It's not, which is one of the reasons why we can say with confidence that the people understand this. This is not a mysterious parable. Um, what, what about so, then the, so we've got the, the master being God. Now it's, it's interesting with, with this one, you've got the master sending his son, you, this delay of where the master is. In other parables, that's the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. Here we right. seem to be talking more in Old Testament terms in, in terms of the, the time that's being described. So maybe a, it's a similar image, but maybe a different use of that image here. Although maybe there's there's probably and we can talk about this toward the end when we get to application. But there may be something to that for us today as we wait for the appearing of the Son of Man on the last day. I don't, right. we, can, we can talk about that. What about the the tenants that are the ones that are raising the crops here, and then the servants that get sent? How do those factor in? Right. So the uh, the tenants are the. Um you know, are the, the religious leadership of Israel. Now, it, obviously, it has direct impact on, um, you know, or direct application to the present ones. But I think you can, you could easily make the argument more broadly um, that it's, it's any of those who have been entrusted. If you remember the, the Old Testament kings of Israel were called shepherds. Um, you know, people, the, uh, the leadership were, were often referred to in these very much kind of caretaking, uh, you know, shepherding, farming sort of roles. In other words, they are charged with the, uh, the stewardship of the people of God. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember uh, which minor prophet it is, but one of them talks about how, 
I, th- I, don't wanna, I want to say it's Amos, uh, you know, talks about the, uh, you know, the, the kings and the, uh, and the, and the higher ups basically, you know, pushing and shoving the, uh, you know, the, the sheep out of the way and, you know, muddying their waters and all that. Right. Um, and so is it Amos? Do you remember? I think well, I mean, Amos. it sounds like something that Amos would say. I think Ezekiel uses a similar image too. I think, the... yeah, I, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. But I think, I think Amos does use, I think they might both use that image. Anyway, the point is, is that you'll find it in the, uh, in the old Testament. And so the, uh, the tenant farmers here, um, you know, represent the religious leadership kind of across time. And that fits nicely with your observation, of course, that this is, seems to be more kind of an Old Testament, fr- uh, you know, uh, time period, um, more so than kind of a waiting for Jesus' second coming. But it, you're right, it has applications for both. The, um, I was going to make one more point about that. And I just lost, I just lost my train of thought. I was doing so well. The servants. So you want to know about the servants <laughs> yeah, though. Let's talk about the servants. Yeah. The, so the servants of course are the prophets. Um, and I think that's reinforced. Now I don't think it's any particular prophet. I think they just generally represent the prophets, but I think that's reinforced further by that quote I made from Luke chapter 13 earlier, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who, you know, stone the prophets and, uh, you know, you know, kill the prophets and stone all those who are actually sent to it. And as we know from our Old Testament history, you know, all the most faithful prophets are the ones who are not received. In fact, I mean, Jesus even uh, points out, he says, you know, you guys say that, oh, well, if we were back then, right, we wouldn't have rejected the prophets. And the truth is they would have, um, you know, they would have thrown Jeremiah and the sister and they would have, uh, they would have rejected the, uh, the word of Isaiah. They would have, uh, you know, opposed all these, you know, all these messengers of God. And that's, and so that's exactly what all of these servants, these threefold servants actually all represent. And I, I think, I think you're right that we don't need to identify any prophets in particular for the three that are mentioned here. Although in the context of Jesus having just brought up John the Baptist, I think that it would be, and again, not that we should see him particularly, but we should recall what has happened to John in that context right. since Jesus has just connected his ministry to John's. Right. Yeah. No, I would include him among the, what you might call the collective three. Yeah. So. Right. But so yeah, no. So he, take because us, he's the, go ahead. there's no, no prophet is, has arisen who's greater than John. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So take us into the, the world of this parable with the tenants being the ones doing the farming, the master owning it, the servants coming to get into the fruit. Help us to understand the just the context in which Jesus tells this so we can understand the mechanics of what happens with it. I mean, why, why is the owner getting mad that he's not getting fruit? How does all that work? Right. Right. And, and maybe this would be obvious to people, but I, I, um, you know, I served my, my first parish was in a, uh, was largely in a farming community. And I think I, um, I, I, un, I realized or appreciated more that the way that, you know, uh, tenant farming worked in the, in the ancient, uh, in, uh, the first century is not how it works today. I mean, oftentimes, you know, it's pretty common, um, you know, as probably most of your, your listeners know that, um, that when you rent from a, uh, from a farmer, sometimes you can do, you know, some kind of a sharecropping arrangement where, you know, you get like a certain percentage of their profits, but most of the time you just pay, you pay a flat fee and essentially the, the, the harvest is yours as the farmer's because you've already paid the uh, the rental price for the uh, for the ground, and then you just hope you have a you have a good harvest. 
Um, that is not how it worked in the ancient world. Because what these guys are, these are not, you know, they're called tenant farmers, but they're not like modern farm renters. And so in no, under no circumstances should we understood that this, this crop somehow belongs to them or that they have a rightful claim to it. That's a really critical uh, point because it's, um, it belongs to the master. And that's what's really, that's what's really critical. The vineyard and all of its crop rightly belong to him, not to the farmers. The farmers were merely stewards. They were, they were rewarded by the master, not from the vineyard itself, if that makes sense. Mm. And so, and I think one way you could put it, um, I think Jeff Gibbs made this, uh, this observation, is that the tenant farmers are really unclear here on who the vineyard actually belongs to. But that was your your long title for the parable, right? I mean, that's oh, right, one, of the, right. one of the keys to this parable is is recog- or that the tenants don't understand that the vineyard doesn't actually belong to them; it belongs to the owner, and that's right. then the reason for not giving the fruit and for mistreating the servants all the way to the sun. It all goes back to rightly recognize who does the vineyard belong to, not the tenants, but to the the master. Right, and that's and that um. Uh, that's um, illustrated by their response to the sun when they actually send the sun. So we, why don't we go ahead? Yeah. Unless you have something else, let's get to him. Then. No, take us to the sun. I mean, that's kind of the, the pivotal moment, right? So the, uh, the you know they send the sun, and we'll, we'll talk about his authority here in a second. Um, but they send he sends the sun, and what do they say? I mean, it, it's really kind of an insane response um, if we really sit down and think about it for more than five seconds. They say, hey, you know, this guy's the heir. Let's kill him and we'll take his inheritance, right? Mm. Nobody ever got an inheritance by killing somebody else. <laughs> I mean, you know, these guys were never part of, you know, the chain of command, so to speak. They were never the next on the line of heirs. Like, well, if we just bump him off, right, then, then, uh, then we'll get written into the... I mean, these guys are delusional. They're nuts. I mean, and so it, it seems foolhardy right from the get-go, but it does, I think, further illustrate that they are really fundamentally confused that this is not their vineyard and, um, and they cannot make it belong to them no matter how hard they try. Even if they kill the heir, everybody knows who's listening to this, at least everybody who would understand, you know, first century Jewish, Jewish legal system and, uh, and how things get passed along. Like, this will never be theirs, even if all the things which they try to accomplish come true. And so, um, you know, just to jump ahead to the theological point is that, you know, Israel still does not become theirs even if they put Jesus to death. Um, and then, of course, you know, then when he rises, that further throws a wrench in the, in the whole plan. But um, so go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was to say, I mean, you, you talk about the foolishness of the tenants in this case, and I think rightly so. I mean, it does not make any sense in my mind, unless there's something I've missed. I, I just don't see it, that they would think that killing the heir puts them in line, un- unless they think they can somehow kill the heir and then kill the master. I, mean, I don't Maybe something we're not getting, but it, it does seem utterly foolish that they would think this. But before we even talk about the foolishness of the tenants, what about what about this master and 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 his line of thinking? Because we do get his line of thinking. He's sent three servants. They've been mm-hmm. each treated shamefully and beaten and cast out one after another. 
What about the thinking of the master in sending his beloved son? Perhaps they will respect him. Is that a, I mean, is that a reasonable expectation on his part? Or is he, he almost comes off as naive. Right. No, I think actually that's a really good character characterization of it. Perhaps maybe not naive, but maybe hopeful, Mm. um, but maybe naively hopeful. Um, There's, if there's a lack of logic on the farmer's part, there is at least a certain kind of hopeful optimism on the master's part, or maybe perhaps better stated, um, long suffering is probably yeah. a better word for it. Because if you think about it, I'm glad you brought this up because this gets us back to the, the, that second issue of authority, right? These, these servants all come to the tenant farmers in the stead of the master. They come deputized with his authority. Like, so when they speak and they ask, they're, they're acting on, on the master's behalf. And clearly the, the, the farmer's um, thinking wrongly that, that this thing belongs to them. They, they fail to acknowledge the authority of the servants and therefore they acknowledge uh, the authority of the master. But I think all that becomes heightened then, that failure to acknowledge authority becomes heightened, of course, when he sends the son himself. And, uh, and of course, just to take a quick pause on this, you notice how he's, you know, this, this son, of course, we instantly think of Jesus and rightfully so. He's described as um, my beloved son, which is exactly how Jesus is described um, by the father himself, right? Uh, you know, at his own baptism, this is my beloved son, right? Um, or, and, and is it again at the transfiguration? Does he say beloved there too? I believe so, yes. Yeah. And so it, it's abundantly clear that Jesus is obviously talking about himself here. I know that's probably not a shock to anybody, but even even the words that he uses to describe the son in the parable point to him. Mm. But you're right in that I think there's a certain, you know, for the skeptics among us, which I mean, um, or perhaps you might say the cautious among us, you know, it's almost like as we're watching all this, you want to say, no, don't do that. Don't send your son. Didn't you see what they did to the servants? This isn't going to end well. It's like It's like we're all like, you know, it's like when you yell at your TV and tell people not to go in the room, right? Because you know what's on the other side. And we're all kind of doing the same thing as we read this parable. And we say, no, what are you going to do? This, you know, the son, you're, he's going to get killed or something terrible is going to happen to him. But doesn't that fit perfectly with um, the entire mission of Jesus that we've seen as it's been unfolding? I mean, Jesus has told his disciples what Luke like, what, like, five or six times now about his own suffering and death, he's fully aware that this is exactly what's going to happen. And so it seems perfectly consistent, um, at least in my mind, that, that the, the master is sending the son in hope that there will be some change of heart by the, uh, by the tenant farmers. And yet if, if it's to be paired with the way that Jesus is revealing the, the Father's divine mission throughout the gospel, he knows what he's doing, and he knows what's going to happen. That's right. Yeah, and that, I do think that that is a, a wonderful picture of God's grace, that he is willing to send his son. Right. We're going we're gonna to pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. We're talking Luke 20 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 31st. We're studying Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 18 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were talking about the graciousness, surprising graciousness. You're yelling at the TV, don't do it. But he sends his son to these tenants in hopes that they will listen. And you you brought up previously that passage from Luke 13 about Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And, and yet, you know, what does Jesus say? How often I would have gathered you. I mean, that's his desire and that's God's desire. I think that ties in perfectly with what he does with his son here. He This is just another example of his want, his desire to gather his children back to himself. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one oats of mercy that's often missed on this. And I want to go back and correct something I said in some ways. I, I talked about optimism, and I don't really think that characterizes as well. It's not like the master's crossing his fingers and like, well, maybe they won't do it this time. Um, I, even though that's kind of what he says here. But if you think about it, that master had the right to go and destroy all those 10 farmers after the first servant. Yeah. He sends three. <laughs> and then he sends his son you know, and I think you're exactly right. He is trying to communicate to them the long suffering, the uh, nature of you know of of the father that that he's he's given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Why? Not because he's a moron, but because he's merciful. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and and once again, even the son himself, knowing full well that um, you know that. You know, they, these at least within the the realm of the the parable that they're going to kill him. Uh, they, he sends him anyway in the hopes, you know, because he so loves the vineyard. Yeah, yeah. The grace of God, the love of God for these people is evident in the way that he continues to send. But each time they do as they have, they reject the owner of the vineyard. They reject his son, that authority that rightly belongs to him. They even kill the son. Then we come to the verdict, and this is where we're going to get the reaction of the crowd, too. Take us into the verdict that is given in the parable, and then how that begins to apply to the situation at hand. Right. So Jesus actually asks this, and I think it's often, uh, every time I read, I, I often get a little bit confused at it, because Jesus asks the question, then immediately answers it himself, because it's rhetorical. That's the whole point. He says, what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? He's going to come and destroy the tenants. And from a from the parable's perspective, this shouldn't be surprising, right? Um, he's done. He has gone to no end, or you know, to every end, in order to ensure that he's going to receive, the, you know, the dew from the vineyard, and the the farmers reject him at every turn, right? So this that part isn't shocking. But you notice what the crowd says. Then the people say. Surely not. No way. You know, almost God forbid. I mean, that's the idea here is that they do not want this to happen. And I, I don't think it's because 
they're so wrapped up in the in the story world of the parable. I think it's because they they understand exactly what this means. They understand that that uh, they are indeed the vineyard, and their religious leaders are the uh, you know they're the they're the tenants. Now, I think there's a couple of possibilities here. I think you we were talking about this a little bit before that um, they respond this way, perhaps because um, you know they you know they just simply don't want this to happen to to the religious leaders, um, you know, sort of as an extension of themselves. And I, so I think that's certainly possible. But I think probably what's more likely is that they assume that the, the destruction of the tenant farmers is going to mean doom for themselves. I mean, you know, all you got to do is think about what happened the last time that, uh, you know, that the, that the farmers of Israel, right, the shepherds of Israel, the, uh, the leaders of Israel, um, were essentially punished for their unfaithfulness. All you got to go do is go back and think Northern Kingdom. Uh, they they got taken captives by the Assyrians. They uh, they got um, you know dislocated from their homeland. And same thing with Babylon, right? I mean, when their leaders go astray, they get taken into captivity. And so I'm I'm guessing that's probably that's got to be rumming, rolling around in their heads somewhere along here. Ooh. That this judgment against the the leadership is ultimately going to end very poorly for them as well. I, I think that that's certainly a possibility. What about, I mean, could it be a, a larger, a, a larger, surely not to not just the destruction aspect there at the end, but even to what happens to the sun? And the reason I, I bring that up is, I mean, I'm reminded of when you said what God, God forbid is the language here. Right. You know, when, when Jesus predicts his passion for the first time, and Peter says, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. Right. I mean, I wonder if something like that could be in view here, too, that they recognize not only the religious leaders in this, but also that Jesus is talking about his own death. And then given the way he quotes from the Psalms after this about it's got to be the cornerstone that's rejected that becomes the cornerstone, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if maybe there's a—that there's surely not is— a broader to the parable as a whole and not only the aspect of judgment. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, you don't have to yeah, agree. No, but... I think that's, I think that's entirely possible too. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if, uh, I don't know how precise we can be with, right. because they don't, they don't specifically say surely not, you know, you know, surely not the destruction of the vineyard, surely not. They don't actually specify in their own responses. So I think we kind of got to keep, all sort of all reasonable options on the table, and so and you and you could very well be right. It could be all of those things. Yeah, it's, it is hard to to know because they just exclaim that and and they don't say why. But then Jesus right. does continue, and I do think that this is very important. Jesus invites them to consider what's written. I believe it's in from Psalm one eighteen, if I'm not mistaken. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What how, how what is Jesus doing then? Is he Here's there surely not, and then invites them to consider this scripture. Right, I think the the first level it works on is that, um, you know, it, that it's he's indicating that, um, you know, that he himself is indeed, you know, he's the cornerstone. Now, of course, you, the question you have to ask is, well, cornerstone of what? Well, that's not really specified here, or for that matter, really in in one eighteen. But I think the given the parable, I think the meaning is pretty clear that they've rejected him, but, um, 
you know, but Jesus is indeed the, the cornerstone of whatever divine purpose God actually has for them. Now, later on, what we'll see is we'll see Peter, of course, interprets that um, or helps us interpret that, um, like in his, uh, in his Pentecost sermon, that, uh, that more fundamentally that, that the builders rejected. So the builders, of course, would be probably first and foremost the religious leaders. I don't know if there's probably also some potential guilt shared by, by anybody who's in Jerusalem, like, like uh, Peter actually seems to indicate in his Pentecost sermon. Um, but that uh, they meant to reject him, but he has actually, you know, received all authority in heaven and on earth. I mean, sort of, you know, exemplified them by his, his ascension to the, uh, the right hand of the throne of God. So that's, that's how I would, I would take that. It's interesting to me that Jesus has just very recently, upon coming into Jerusalem, talked about the stones there in Jerusalem not being mm-hmm. left upon one another. And here Jesus now becomes a stone that will be rejected, that yet will be a cornerstone. And although it's not you know, specified right here, I think when we tie those things together, we do start to see that Jesus is talking about himself as the, the cornerstone for the right. church, for the people of God, the new temple, all those things. Sure. Well, I, I mean, also add to that the point that um, just early on in Holy Week, he, he cleared out the temple and said, you know, tear this da- temple down and now we'll be right. rebuilt in three days. And so you have the obvious, you have the obvious association with him be, being the temple and also therefore the cornerstone of it as well. What about the way Jesus speaks about that verse? And after he, he quotes from Psalm 118, he then says, everyone who falls on that stone, I'm assuming he's referring to the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It sounds like one way or another, the stone is going to hurt you. Uh, yeah, what's yeah, what's exactly. he talking about? I mean, I think I find this to be the most difficult verse in the entire passage, so I, I would welcome your reflection upon this. But I do see reflected uh, in it a certain truth that, that we've kind of more broadly noticed about Christian theology, and that is that— um, if I can put it real shortly, nobody makes it out alive. <laughs> I mean, that Jesus is going to be your death sort of one way or another, or I should say, maybe I should put it differently, that you die one way or another. Like we as Christians, we, we confess, you know, especially in the, uh, you know, as we confess baptism that um, in Romans chapter six, that, uh, that in baptism we're buried with him uh, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too should walk in newness of life. And, you know, Paul has other times where he speaks about this too, but that we die with Jesus. We are buried with him and we rise with him as well. And so we sometimes forget, you know, we jump right ahead to the, uh, to the, to the resurrection, but I think we sometimes forget that like, oh yeah, this is actually, you know, we get, crucified and of course there's all the those times where jesus talks about you know our fate as a disciple is to be crucified along with him and of course some of the apostles quite literally then were or at least according to tradition were indeed crucified um but that we actually end up becoming solidified with him on on the cross but and so that's how i um i take that maybe not to mean but uh, anyone who falls on that stone. So for every Christian, we all, you might say, do fall, you know, you know, over Christ in the sense that we also suffer his, you know, his crucifixion along with him. But for those who reject Christ, ultimately, you know, death comes to them as well. But unfortunately, it's not a death um, in Christ. It's a death apart from Christ, which is far worse, obviously, infinitely worse. 
Yeah, I think and you're so. Right. That's yeah. I don't know if that's exactly like you know if in exegesis one hundred and one that's exactly how you're going to find this passage interpreted, but that's what I connect to it theologically. Um, from this. So what are your thoughts on it? No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, particularly, you know, one way or another you die and you, you connected it to the cross carrying, which Jesus has said is a daily thing for his disciples. You know, he's, he's talked about you, if you want to save your life now, you'll end up losing it. If you lose your life now, you'll end up saving it. And I mean, again, right. you, that's a similar way of talking here, it seems that one way or another, you are going to lose your life. So are you going to lose your life now with Christ and so right. be raised with him on the last day? Or will you try to have your life now in, in whatever way you want apart from Christ, but then end up losing it forever on the last day because you haven't been with Christ right now? I mean, Luke's been going through this over and over again, how it is through suffering that Jesus will enter into his glory. And so those who follow Jesus... I think again, it's it's not it's not made explicit here because right here is just the either the being broken or crushed language, but I, I think that you can connect it to that theology that's been running throughout Luke and as you pointed out in Paul and throughout the scriptures. Right, and um, if you recall, your at least in the book of Matthew, that reference to um, you know whoever wants to uh, to save his life will lose, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's that's all coming on the heels when uh, Jesus sends out the 12 um, and, and warns them about the kind of persecution and hardship actually they're going, going to face. And so it's, the point is, is that it's, that is put directly within the context of Jesus's description of the Christian life, uh, you know, for the, for the apostles. And so I think it, it fits all, you know, it fits very appropriately there as well. So let's, let's try to apply this parable for us as Christians in the church today, as you said, it's pretty straightforward for the hearers then as to what Jesus is talking about. They seem to understand it right away, both the crowds, and then again in tomorrow's text, we'll see the scribes and the chief priests also understand it, that it's against them. For us today, with these matters of authority and ownership, you know, who does the, the vineyard, who does the church belong to, that seems that this talk of a cornerstone fits in right there and is, is one way that we can think about this applying to us as Christians today. Yeah, I think that, that this parable obviously serves as a strong warning to the religious leaders of Jesus's day, but I think we should not miss how potent of a warning it actually proves to us as well today. Now, let, let's start with the cherry picking first, right? Because this is, in some ways, it'll lead us into the more things that will make us all squirm a little bit more. Um, you know, I'm sure you've probably heard before, Pastor Apple, that, um, you know, people ask you things like, like, well, how many members does, you know, do you have at your church? Or, you know, uh, you know, how big is your church programs and, and whatnot? People always ask, and it's, it's always, it's always a, a strange question, at least in my mind, when people talk about your church, you know, I, if I ever have the opportunity, I usually like to gently correct people like, well, actually, it doesn't belong to me. Um, but, but you do see that spirit, though, I think broadly in American Christianity, or you might even just say broadly in American spirituality, that um, you know, we have this really unfortunate tendency, I think, uh, in America that as we see, you know, churches are often become like, 
you know, the pastors are like venture capitalists and, uh, you know, and it's, it's a new business that they're, you know, they're, they're striking out and they become, you know, the, the figurehead and the, almost sometimes the identity of those churches. Uh, I'm sure we could list a lot of, uh, of, of other examples. The, you know, you sometimes hear described as a cult of personality and, um, and, and certainly, I mean, it's easy to throw stones at that. Um, and so I don't want to get into uh, to name calling, but at least to do a little bit of, of uh, fruitful reflection on that. I mean, that's, that's obviously always dangerous simply for the reason that it, it confuses, we tend to become confused about who the church belongs to. Uh, you know, per the parable, um, and well, and the rest of, and the rest of the Bible, it's not our church, right? It's it is the Lord's church. Um, I mean, even you cited um, Matthew chapter sixteen when uh, when Peter makes the, a good confession about Christ. Um, he says, "You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." It's not Peter's church. It's not James's church. Now, my church is not your church. It's Jesus's church. And how well we would do to constantly, constantly, constantly remember that. Um, and I mean, the, the blessings of that are so manifold. I mean, obviously, number one, just that <laughs> that's what the Lord says, and it's true. And it also obviously goes so poorly. I mean, you think about the, um, uh, all of the, the fallout from, from various mega churches that, have, that you know, we've seen, unfortunately, you know, smeared across the front page over the last couple of decades. It seems like uh, it seems like every other year we've got some big, you know, meltdown in American Christianity, and there's always some part of it that seems to be wrapped up in a cult of personality, where people have really gotten confused about who does the church really belong to. Um, and you know, I had a friend once who quipped, um, so credit where credit is due. This is not mine. He said, he said, you know, everybody always says, you know, we got a really great pastor. He said, why doesn't anybody ever say we've got a really great Jesus here? Yeah. And uh, I think that would go a long way into to really testifying the fact that, um, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to have a pastor you like and you resonate with and all that other good stuff. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but you really do have to eventually ask why am I coming for this guy's personality, because I like this, that, and the other thing about him, the way he talks, the way he, you know, he remembers my kids' birthdays or whatever it is, or, or am I coming for Jesus? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that, that's very well, well said. You know, we, and the, the danger then, of course, when you, when you realize, okay, it's not about the pastor. He is a servant of the Lord. It's not his church. It's not the pastor's church. It's the Lord's church. The, the danger sometimes can be to swing too far the other way. And to say, okay, well, it's not the pastor's church, so it must be the people's church. Uh, sometimes, right, I'll, right. sometimes I'll do this in, in particular in youth confirmation classes. I'll, I'll ask when well, we're talking about the third article of the creed in the church. I'll say, okay, who's in charge of the church? Is it the pastor or the congregation? And, and, and sometimes they'll they'll fall for it and they'll answer one, and I'll say no, and then they'll answer the other, and they'll say no, I'll say no, and they'll, wait, wait, what? <laughs> you know, but but it is a, it is a temptation to to go to either side. Okay, it's not the pastor church; it must be the congregations. Right. Well, no, yeah, it's Christ's church, and both pastor and people follow him. Right. I mean, I, I'm sure you can, you and I can both regale, uh, you know, the listeners with with stories about you know the rogue board of elders who, uh, by the way, not not a personal story, 
just for the uh, for the record. But uh, the rogue board of elders who you know who tells the pastor, well, hey, you work for me or you work for us, right? Well, no, actually, the pastor doesn't work for the elders. He actually works for Jesus. Um, but but you're right. It's it's very easy, especially I think with our long history here in America of uh, of such staunch congregationalism, uh, where you know where either we're in charge or the pastor's in charge. It's it is it, we at least can sort of give everybody the ben, um, you know, sort of the benefit of the doubt because we at least have to acknowledge this is kind of a weird thing because there is no other institution, there is no other entity in our lives, um, you know, where, you know, where uh, it, it's not owned by the people or the leader, right? I mean, you know, so much of our democratic republic, I mean, that thinking of, that democratic thinking of, it's the power of the people and majority rules and so on and so forth that creeps into so many areas of our lives. I mean, and especially the church. Now it's not to like throw voters assemblies completely under the bus, but in the end, you know, we don't have those things because like democracy is like the, uh, you know, is the divinely right way to run the church, uh, you know, any more than, uh, you know, than the archbishop is the king of the church either. So, I mean, with with both of those sides in mind, then that sometimes the it might be the pastor who abuses the authority given to him, or it might be a congregation that abuses the authority, or some combination thereof. How does this parable serve as a a warning to those who have that authority within the church, clergy, voters, elders, whoever they may be? Right. How does this parable serve as a warning to us? Yeah, I th- I think it reminds us. Um, that we always sort of need to have our radar up and be constantly reminding and reminded of the reality that um, we all, you know, as individual Christians and collectively as a church, um, we belong to Christ. I mean, he's the, uh, you know, he, he is not only our king, but we are also, you know, we are also his, his servants. And I mean, if I could put it so bluntly, we are his property. Um, not in the sense that, you know, in a demeaning way, but, uh, but that he owns us. And, uh, that's actually one of the best things you could possibly imagine, because if Jesus doesn't own you, then you'll be owned by everything else. Um, but, uh, I think it just has to be part of the, the regular, um, kind of the, the regular discourse of the church, uh, that we constantly remind one another and are reminded of the fact that, uh, that we do not treat each other as, um, you know, as our own personal belongings. I mean, especially for pastors, you know, uh, it, you know, we, we might do well almost every, every week to say, Hey, um, you, I know that you don't belong to me. Your care has been entrusted to me by Jesus. I'm answerable to him. And I think also the, the parish would actually do really well to hear that too. Yeah, so. and, yeah, no, and, and and then you know the the strong warning on top of that is that when we fall into that mindset, whether pastor or people, of thinking it belongs to us, the Lord is not afraid to remove us from those positions either. Right. I mean that you know there is a that is a certainly a, a law warning from this parable, one that we would do well to remember that the Lord's vineyard will survive. He, it's got Christ as as the cornerstone, and those are the right. two metaphors Jesus uses. I don't know that we're mixing them. You know, we we need to keep that in mind. It's not about us. If we start to idolize ourselves, we run into trouble. Christ right. alone is the cornerstone. We got about 
three minutes here, Pastor Johnson, help us to, to wrap things up. Give us, even in the midst of this warning, give us the good news from this parable. Yeah, let me do that with a quick anecdote. Um, and we'll get to the good stuff, but we got to go through the bad stuff first. Um, you know, as a, as a young pastor uh, a number of years ago, I remember coming back from some really discouraging, you know, voters assembly. I can't remember what it was, but but I remember kind of despairing of the church and saying, oh, you know, well, we're not going to meet budget. Things are falling apart. We're not bringing enough new members in and so on and so forth. And uh, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, uh, you know, well, if, if I could just do X, Y, and Z, I can't even remember what I was thinking of, but I remember, I distinctly remember thinking if I could just be, um, you know, more, you know, engaging in the community and you know, making a list of all the things in my head of, of the things that I should have been doing, you know, and, uh, and ultimately I, uh, I realized that, you know, we're so used to seeing taking undue credit for successes. I think sometimes we also miss the fact that we act like the church is ours, even in our failures that, uh, that I really saw, I really thought you know, well, the church is dying because I'm failing to do all these other things. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times where, you know, dereliction of duty is a real thing. But I really thought that, well, if, if I could just do X, Y, and Z, I could make the, make the church succeed, which is just as bad as the guy who says, well, since I've done X, Y, and Z, now the church is succeeding. And, uh, and I eventually, I came out of it on the other side saying, no, this is actually the Lord's church, and I'm given to do one thing, and that is to be faithful with everything I have and am. And in the end, you know, it is the uh, the Lord's to grow. And just like St. Paul says, you know, I, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. And in the end, the, the end I cannot take uh, the final blame or the credit for either of those things. And so we simply say, you know, God, be merciful to me, a servant of the church. And, um, you know, and if with that, um, you can get up every morning and still keep serving the church, whether you're having earthly success or failure, because we remember it's all still his. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us today with Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 18. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. No, thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 20 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app. Send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.